Let's begin reading in John chapter 3, verses 22, and then down through verse 30 for our text this morning. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in the Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing. Unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase but i must decrease you know people are interesting creatures to observe Uh, one of my favorite hobbies is people watching and yes that means some of you and you look at me and you're bewildered too i'm sure but people are interesting There is different as night and day. We're sitting here this morning. We are all as different as night and day. And yet, at the same time, there are certain truths, certain realities that unite all of us. And the greatest uniting factor among humanity is this. We are all born in sin. We're all born sinners. We are all born with a pervasive, invasive, total sin nature. Because of sin, humanity has other common traits. If if that's true, then other things are inherently true as well. Humans are all prone to self-exaltation. We all love self-promotion. Let's be honest. We all love positions where we have influence and where we bear a certain degree of power. We enjoy that. And, And to deny that is just to unite another common trait. We're all liars. We like to be right. We like to be esteemed. We relish that way. In fact, in some ways, we we could accurately change all of our names here in the room this morning to diatrophies because all of us love the preeminence. Whether it's in our home, whether it's in our little group at work, whether it's on our sports teams, everyone, because of our common humanity, our common sinfulness deal with this monster of pride. And I don't know about you, but 
I'm getting older and my wife will never get older. You ladies will never get older. But, but one thing I'm learning about my own sinfulness is that pride doesn't age well. It just gets worse. And it just gets more cranky. And it just gets more self-absorbed and, and more fallen, it seems. Sin, and particularly the sin of, of pride, just is so devastating in our lives. And that's what makes it so rare, isn't it? That's what makes it so rare when someone who has been a leading light or the leader of a movement, the voice in a particular area that everyone respects and looks up to, isn't it even more amazing when they step down in grace and say, listen, I have had the privilege of leading you. I've had the privilege of serving you. And now I want you to listen to this individual who's following in my footsteps. Let's be honest, that doesn't happen very often in the world that we live in. Why? Because there's something in the human heart that wants to be the greatest, or as you kids say, the goat. The greatest of all time. And I want everybody to remember that. And we have a hard time letting go when we hand off those followers, those who have respected us, and we say, listen, it's, it's time for you now to listen to this individual. They will serve you and lead you well. That's rare. Whether it's a company founder, a teacher, a coach, a pastor, a politician, even a parent, this can be hard to do. Let me rephrase that. That's impossible to do. Apart from a supernatural work of God in us, we are self-exalters because of our sin nature. And yet, as believers, we, we, see the, we see the travesty of this. We see the wrongness of our sin. And it's a daily battle that we are called to fight. And we engage in this every day. We, we, we look in the mirror and we confront that monster. I'm a proud person. And to say that I'm not is to prove that I am. We're called to fight this war against pride. We are called to wage this war against self-exaltation. We live where this passage is this morning. Every day, in every one of our lives, the God-man, Jesus Christ Himself, stands in our midst. He stands as the one supreme in our lives. He stands as the supreme one in the world in which we live. He stands as the only person who has the right to be exalted and the call comes out to us it's time for you to exit the stage it is time for you to be diminished so that christ may be exalted 
It is time for you to deny yourself that Christ might be known. It's time for you, in that heated moment, that argument, for you to bite your tongue and to humbly, kindly, graciously walk off so that Christ can be seen in you and not Satan in your words. It's time for you to give of yourself to someone else who will never know it was you, but that Christ might be magnified in them. Every day we are faced with this call to exit so that Christ may enter. So that Christ might be known. And here in this transitional passage of verses 22 through 30, it may seem inconsequential, all but verse 30 may seem inconsequential to us. It may seem as a word count filler, which it's not. But even here in this transitional passage, we we find not wasted words, but important words that teach us about the lessons of humility. They teach us the lessons that John the Baptist must convey to his disciples. Lessons that... Support John's driving desire. That support John's consistent methodology in this Gospel. He simply wants Jesus to be known. He's always showing us how people are introduced to Jesus. Always showing us how Jesus is revealing Himself. Always pointing us. He wants you to know who Jesus is. And He wants you and your life here in this example to learn what that takes through you so that others may also know who Jesus is. Is that your life's purpose today? If it's all boiled down and you were to sit alone by yourself with your thoughts, with a Bible for an hour in a posture of prayer before the Lord, and you were to be really honest about what you live for, would it be so that Christ is known? Or is it a job? Is it for something that might even be good? Well, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't have a job. I don't have all these outside career um, goals, and I'm, there's nothing lofty about me in that way. I'm just a, you know, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, but do, do you live for your kids, or do you live so that Christ is made known to your kids? There's a difference. I'm just a, I'm just a student. I'm just a, a young person. I'm just a school-aged kid. I mean, yeah, yeah, but do you, do you study? And are you learning? So that as your life grows and develops and you become what God has for you to be so that you can more clearly, more articulately cause other people to know Him? Do you live for that? Is that your life's purpose? Well, I want you to see three lessons that unfold here in the text this morning. Or three truths about really one lesson. First of all, there's the preparation for the lesson. Look at verses 22 through 24. As John moves and he takes us on a 
journey from the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus to the next scene of Jesus' ministry, again, we are confronted that the reality of John's Gospel is simply this. I want you to see Jesus at every turn. Nothing is inconsequential. No detail is unused or superfluous to the purpose of John's Gospel. He wants you to know Jesus. But in order to know Jesus, in order to see Jesus, John, as a master teacher, prepares the lesson. Every great lesson takes preparation. Some of you here who teach or have taught know that lesson preparation is important. Teachers and even preachers like myself must labor not only to know the material, but to be able to convey the material in a way that would not be distracting, to try to remove distractions. Illustrations are crafted. Transitions are written out so that we move smoothly and show the relationship of one thing to another so that we can help our hearers connect the dots. In these passages of interlude, that's what John is doing. He's leading us. He is trying to prepare us without distraction to see and to absorb the lesson so that we see Christ. Now we might look at some of these facts that John gives about Jesus going to Judea. And we might think, big deal. And Jesus is baptizing, big deal. And Jesus is in a certain uh, geographical area with, with named locales. Big deal. But why does John do that? And let me just list a few reasons John is doing that for you this morning so that as you read these transitional passages that move between the big events of Jesus' life, you'll understand why he's doing what he's doing. First of all, John is a different kind of gospel writer. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as synoptic gospels. They, they parallel and correspond almost identically with slight variations that God used in those men to convey different aspects of really the same events over and over again. But John's not like that. While some of John overlaps with those three writers, he presents a view of Jesus that is altogether different. He is the disciple referred to throughout the New Testament as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the disciple who was probably, if we're, you know, nobody has favorites, right? But, but if we were to say one disciple was maybe a little closer to Jesus, it would have been the Apostle John. Hey, let's face it, when all the other apostles ran at the crucifixion, John was still around. He loved Jesus. He was loved by Jesus. And he has a different perspective then to share than the other gospel writers did. And so what he adds, he's a specialist. He's got an intentional focus to know Jesus and reveal Jesus in ways that the other guys weren't called to give. He records things that are not recorded in other places, but that are absolutely necessary for us to hear. And so he's a unique writer, but he is also a scholar. He knows what others have 
have covered. He knows where they start. In fact, look at one little detail. And this is just how interesting God's word is written and how it proves itself. Look at verse 24. John had not yet been thrown into prison. And you might look at that and you might say, why? Why does he feel compelled to tell us? Oh yeah, by the way, John the Baptist, here we are talking about Jesus, Jesus baptizing, crowds coming to him. Why stop and say John the Baptist isn't in jail yet? That seems random. Well, here's the reality. Notice that John says that Jesus begins here in verse 22 in Judea. Well, guess where all the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, guess where Jesus starts his ministry? Galilee. And so some may look at John and say, well, maybe this isn't a true Gospel. Maybe we should listen to this. After all, those three say it's in Galilee. John says it starts in Judea. Well, John throws in this interesting fact about John the Baptist as a time marker to say, I am aware that he's, You said he started in Galilee. I've started before you started. My starting place is different. I'm recording different facts here. And so here's a little time marker so that you know, I know what's going on in everything else. I'm a scholar. I've read what Matthew said. I know what Mark said. I know what Luke said. But I'm here to record something different. And so he's a studied man. He has a reason why he should be trusted as he reveals Jesus. Third, he's a practitioner. He practices what he preaches. And this is important. It doesn't do you much good to just have a bunch of facts crammed upon you if, if the one cramming them has never lived them. That's why high schoolers don't write books on parenting. They haven't done that yet. They have no clue. It doesn't, it rings hollow. John is not merely writing about things he's heard about. He is writing about things that he himself has experienced. And he is eager for others to know them and experience them as well. And any student or parent of a student wants their children instructed by the best. Not just people who got, got a piece of paper from some institution, they want their children taught by somebody who actually knows how to do it, right? Really, all all up until my very later stages of education, formal education, when I had some of the world's best, my best teacher, my favorite teacher, the, the best teacher I had, was my junior high and high school science teacher. She was mean. She was tough. She was no-nonsense. And Eric and Greg are probably sitting here, uh, Eric and Greg are going, yeah, I bet I know who's coming next. But you know what made her such a great teacher? She had been a scientist. She was a leukemia researchist. In MD Anderson. And when she came to our classroom, she didn't just read it in a book. She had practiced it. And, and we got to do some really cool things that other kids I didn't think ever got to really do. 
I got to learn how to draw blood when I was in 10th grade. Any of you do that? That was awesome. Right, because this teacher knew what she was doing. She had lived it. She was a practitioner as well as a teacher. And John is that man. He, he's a practitioner. He knows whereof he speaks. He has lived what he speaks about. And I want you to notice then what he is showing us to be true about Jesus. Jesus comes into Judea according to verse 22. Now, some of you may go back in your mind to chapter 2, verse 23, and say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was already in Judea because he's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in Judea. So he's already there. How is it that he's coming into Judea here now later in chapter 3? What John is helping us to see is that Jesus doesn't just stay in Jerusalem. He goes out into the heartland of Judea. He goes out to where the people are. He goes out into flyover country. Now you ask anybody that's from New York State, do they like to be thought of as being from New York City? And they will tell you, no, there's a lot more to our state than one city. We are not New Yorkers in that sense. That there is more to it than that. And, and, and what John is showing is that Jesus, he's not confined to the ivory towers, the big city of Jerusalem, with all the rest of the religious establishment. No, he's going out into Judea, into where the people are, to minister to them. He's a man of the people. Unlike some leaders who are untouchable, Jesus comes to be touched. If you don't believe that, read what else John reads in his introductory sentence in 1 John chapter 1. Whom we have seen with our eyes, whom we have handled. It's earthy. He touches Jesus. Jesus is among them. Jesus is loved by them. Jesus is one of them. Jesus goes to the unclean and the societal outcast. He goes to the tax collectors and the military leaders. He beckons children and He raises the dead. He talks with women of ill repute and instructs the most brilliant minds of His day. Jesus is everywhere and with everyone. You should know this about Jesus. He came for the people by living among the people. As a result, people are responding. Notice what the text says. His disciples go with him. He's got quite a crowd. Not 12. He's got more than that. And they're leaving Jerusalem and they're following him out into the countryside to see what he will say and to see what he will do. There's a growing response to Jesus that is building the intensity of this lesson. People are continuing to come to Him as Jesus moves from Jerusalem out into the countryside. We see the crowds escalating. Now, by the way, that changes very quickly in chapter 6. Because the preaching of Jesus becomes too difficult to handle. And the crowds leave Him and they go back to where they had come from. And you, you remember, Jesus turns to the twelve and He says to them, do you want to leave too? 
I mean, I know the mass is left, but are, are you leaving too? Is this too much for even you? But for now, everybody is happy to be on the bandwagon and everybody is following Jesus in this growing movement. They are being baptized in His name. Look at the text. After these things, Jesus and His disciples came to the land of Judea and there He was spending time with them and baptizing them. They were being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. His disciples are taking part in that. They are helping to baptize according to chapter 4, verse 2. Jesus is not actually doing the physical baptizing. His disciples are helping with that. Just as He commissioned His church to do in Matthew 28, 19, go into all nations, make disciples, and baptize them. We have that commission. They had that commission even in His own day. But there's an eagerness to hear Jesus. People are thronging to Him and they, they want to learn from Him. But I want you to, to notice something else that is precious about Jesus' ministry here. It says, and, and again, we may fly over this, but we shouldn't. It says Jesus was spending time with them. There, there's a seeming, and the way this is worded in John's original writing, there's, a, there's no limit to it. Jesus is not in a hurry. Jesus doesn't hang out a sign and say, hey, listen, revival Monday to Friday, and then Jesus is on to the next town. He's just there. He's just taking his time with the people. He is among them. And how abnormally refreshing is that? A Savior who comes to sinners, and He's not hurrying them along, and He's not hurrying to get through His ministry. He's content just to be with them. And I think that in each one of us, there's a longing for something like that. Can you imagine just to sit down with Jesus, and He's not in a hurry, and you're not in a hurry to learn from Him? What a great day that would be. Jesus comes to your neighborhood and He says, I've got no agenda. I'm not in a hurry. Let's talk. Watch me at work. Spending time with them. There's no fulfillment in view here. It's just without end. It's open-ended. He's come to give of Himself. What a correlation. The more time with Jesus, the greater the response seems to be. That's the text. As Jesus is here, the crowds are growing. Why are they growing? He's staying. Wherever Christ is, the more, the more of the fruits that come from being with Him are manifest. What a lesson for us. The more time we spend with Christ, guess what grows? We begin to grow. His impact on us begins to multiply and increase. True discipleship takes this kind of time. Discipleship, Corey and I were talking about it on Friday, cannot be rushed. It's not a program. It's not, well, hey, if you do this class for one hour a week, for six weeks, you're discipled. Discipleship is a lifetime investment in relationship with Jesus. Jesus appears to be showing us these truths. It's not compartmentalized. It's not rushed. 
we might read this and say, boy, Jesus better hurry. Jesus, I mean, after all, they didn't know it, but we know it. Jesus only has three and a half years. He only has three and one half years to accomplish redemption for the human race. And all of eternity hangs on this. And we can read this. What are you spinning? Doesn't he have more important things to do? He must be. Jesus has to be aware that his time is limited. We might tell Jesus if we were his, uh, you know, campaign managers. Jesus, you need to go where the crowds are. Jesus, you need to get back to Jerusalem because after all, all the media outlets are in Jerusalem. If you'll get there, they'll get the word out. We need you in high-profile places. We need you to be seen with important people. And where's Jesus? Flyover country. For lack of a better term, Midland, Texas. Stanton, Texas. Seminole, Texas. Andrews, Texas. That's where he's at. Odessa. He's just with the people. Not Jesus. He's resting in the sovereignty of His Father's plan. He knows He's not going to fail. He doesn't have to get to where we might tell Him to go. He is where He needs to be, doing what He needs to do, and this is it. So many times, we would be tempted to look at a text like this and say, this needs to move. We have no time to waste. God's work needs to occur in our time frame. God's time frame. Hey, come on, come on. We got to get this going. Jesus didn't feel any rush. Should you? Or should we just enjoy the Savior? Should we take time to savor the Savior? Should we take time to watch Him work how He will work? Should we take time to evangelize carefully, faithfully, consistently? Or do we try to simplify it to the point that we can... I'll never forget, when I graduated from seminary, there was an evangelistic program that had come out. And I was encouraged to, the church we were at, to... Maybe see how we could implement this. And, and their claim to fame was this. We will show you how to share the gospel and lead someone to Christ in five minutes or less. Well, you never know. Those people might go out and they might die. And then it's going to be our fault that they didn't, we didn't hurry them along. Jesus doesn't seem to be in a hurry. Should I? Or should I rest in God's plan that I'm going to be faithful I'm going to be true. I'm going to do the things that need to be done and say what needs to be said. And I'm going to just trust God's time frame for this. That's what Jesus appears to be doing here. But then as we get to verses 23 and 24, we find there is a growing tension about this. Jesus is gaining in popularity. And He's gaining in popularity in the same area where His cousin john the baptist the one who has been the leading light 
who has been the leading voice in his day, is also preaching and baptizing. You have two massive movements in the same place doing the same thing. And one has been the greatest for quite a while. And the new one see, it could be seen as an up and coming threat. The place that is referred to where these baptisms are taking place just to state this, it states that, uh, that there was much water there. The, the literal name in Aramaic means place of the springs. There are apparently many springs feeding rivers and creeks, as it were, where these baptisms could take place. It is in the land also known as Samaria, which conveniently enough is where Jesus sets himself up for ministry in chapter 4. It had to occur in this place. This is where Jesus is going to teach that He's the living water. So what does Jesus do? He goes to where there is the most water. So people get the picture. So that His disciples can be baptized. He's, he's missing no detail here. John is baptizing and Jesus is baptizing. And the crowds are growing. And the preeminent voice is still on the scene and this competing voice is rising up. And again, John says, "Hey, just I know where we're at. I know where the storyline is. We're not to Galilee yet. So just enjoy this part of the story. Don't be confused. I didn't get it wrong. I'm recording something before that nobody else got. So Jesus is here. John is here. They're baptizing. The stage is set for many miraculous and wonderful truths to develop over the coming days. And all the while in the background, there's a storm brewing. And it plays out in the coming verses. And it's not a storm of a meteorological type. It's the storm of pride. It is a storm whose clouds don't obscure the stars or the moon or the bright sunshine. But it is a storm that seeks to obscure the sun, S-O-N, by our pride. And yet wherever Jesus is exposed in all of His glory, we should expect that Satan will rise and attack that. And so he does. Notice the problem in the lesson. A good lesson has preparation for it. A good lesson has a background set for it. A good lesson has prerequisites that have been established. But a good lesson also presents problems. Because learning how to deal with problems is necessary for life. We don't just give our kids random numbers, we teach them how to make sense out of those numbers by what? Rigorously learning how to think through and solve problems. And so the problem enters here so that the Son might be even more magnified in this ministry. We find in verse 25 there is a discussion, really a debate, with some of John's disciples and a particular Jew about the ritualistic process more than likely of baptism. 
baptism wasn't new. But many may think that baptism came about with the, the age of the church and a New Testament thing. Actually, Jews and converts to Judaism uh, were often baptized. It was a ritualistic purification. It was an outward sign. And so here there's a debate between John the Baptist followers and some Jewish person. What are these rituals? John, no, listen, he knows what John's are. John's been around for a while. But, but it indicates that he's, he's asking about Jesus. Now, wait a minute, John, you're baptizing, but now here's this new guy and he's baptizing. What are his ritualistic purifications showing? Who has more value? Is his better or yours? Why is Jesus necessary, John? Why is Jesus growing at a faster rate than you are? Why is Jesus taking the market share away from you? And the response in verse 26 gives us a window into the mind of the disciples of John the Baptist. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, an honorific title that we know of, John's not been to the school of the rabbis to earn that title. But kind of like Nicodemus gives it to Jesus, so they give it to John here. He who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. They respect John. They love John. They are followers of John. They're willing to debate for John. They are his apologists, his promoters. And notice they give accurate, factual information. John had been with Jesus. The Baptist had been uttering prophetic and certain words about Jesus. Apparently, they understood John the Baptist spoke very well of Jesus, and they're a little bothered by this now. John, you know, um, maybe you shouldn't have platformed Jesus quite like you did. Maybe you shouldn't have spoken so well of Jesus as you did. Because now, you see, John, we've got a problem. All the people are coming to Jesus. Jesus has taken our business, John. Jesus has more likes than you. Jesus has more followers than you these were the original followers by the way jesus has more popularity than you do now john what are we going to do their sense of jealousy just comes spilling out doesn't it where does jealousy come from pride why i'm the greatest why aren't they following me Why aren't they following us? What are we going to do now for ministry? Are we irrelevant? Or has Jesus delegitimized us? Have we been canceled because of Him? I mean, we've given our lives to follow you, John. Help us understand what is going on. How human. How human of them. And before we throw too many stones, let's, let's all admit we'd be doing the same thing. 
we would worry about the same things. If you want to know where pride lurks in your own heart, if you want to know from whence your jealousy will spring, see what arises when Christ and the supremacy of Christ is applied to every area of your life. And then see what pushes back. That's what happens here. The supremacy of Christ, the exalted Christ is applied. And what comes out? Fear, jealousy, pride, competition, frustration, tensions. Wherever Jesus is, His perfection, His beauty, His righteousness will provoke our sin. Paul's point in Romans 7 is, and I didn't know I wasn't supposed to covet till the law, the perfect righteousness of the law said, don't covet. And then what I do? I started coveting everywhere. When Jesus, the Son of Light, reveals Himself, it reveals sin. Just like it does in these men. Their jealousies, their pride comes spewing out. Now, notice how John the Baptist responds. He doesn't join them. He rebukes them. And he doesn't rebuke them by chiding them, telling them how terrible they are, and berating them. He rebukes them with truth. In fact, he does it in a most interesting way. How many of you remember learning in grammar school not to not ever use a double negative. Now that would get your sentence highlighted in red, wouldn't it? And yet that's exactly what John the Baptist does. He speaks for emphasis, to, to grab the attention. He speaks with a double negative. He essentially says this, verse 27, A man cannot receive not even a single thing. Cannot not. Double negative. Cannot receive not even a single thing thing unless it has been given to him from heaven without asking them he asks them where do you think this man named Jesus where do you think his ministry comes from you see because nothing happens unless heaven does it. Unless heaven reveals it, unless heaven gives it, there is nothing. What is heaven? Well, in New Testament speak, that is the place where God dwells. It is a place, therefore, of authority. That's why Jesus tells His disciples to pray in Matthew 6-9, Our Father, not just our Father, our Father where? In heaven. That means He's got the authority. And so the Baptist says to his disciples, unless the place of authority, unless the source of all things grants it, it is not happening. It all comes out of God's sovereign rule. So if you ask me where his authority comes from, that's where it comes from. In fact, we can back up to verse 21. Look at verse 21 Notice where salvation comes from. So that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought where? 
in God, in the place of authority. This is where all things come from. Hey, Jesus couldn't do this unless heaven sent him to do it. I'm not threatened. Rather, I'm very contented at the moment. Because I know that my life and my ministry have accomplished their purpose. I'm actually watching the fulfillment of what I came to testify to. How gratifying. How gratifying. But not for His disciples. But not for His disciples. Why? In their minds, they're number one. John's number one. My guy's the best. My guy's number one. Hey, you know, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he kind of says the same thing to him. He says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. The Brian Fairchild paraphrases, you knuckleheads. You say you're of Paul. You say you're of Apollos. I say I'm of Christ. Knock it off. Christ is supreme. Knock out this proud, bickering, jealousy, envy, and strife. That's what Satan does. But if heaven sends it, I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. If heaven has granted it, it can't be removed or diminished. If heaven has granted it, you know it is written in stone. And look at Jesus. Look what He's doing. It's drawing people to himself salvation has finally come the baptist isn't wrestling what with what is transpiring rather he is content with what god has not only given jesus to do but what god has given him to do he's just confident and resting in the sovereignty of god wouldn't it be great to be that way to just say so much so this is what god has for me this is what God has for you. And when I see God working in you this way and me another way, I can say, praise God for that. I'm not threatened by that. I'm not jealous of it. I just understand that's how it is. I trust the sovereignty of God. He knows better than I. By the way, this same trust in the sovereignty of God opens John up to do what he has to do in the next chapter of his life, and that is to give his head. You ever wonder how the martyrs, how men like John the Baptist did what they did? They believed the sovereignty of God. I'm not important. I don't have to be here. I don't have to be heard. I don't have to be seen. And so John carries this out and he says, don't you remember? I told you I'm not the Christ. You're supposed to be looking for the Christ. Somehow you've forgotten that over time and you're looking at me instead of Jesus. I told you he was coming. I told you I was just here to prepare the way, to prepare the lessons. Let me ask you a hard question. Are you content to be in the position of John the Baptist. Aren't you glad that 
the disciples of John the Baptist didn't get their way, what would their way have been? Let's stop Jesus from doing it. In fact, we know in Mark chapter 9, verse 40, that's exactly what the 12 wanted to do at one point. They say, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a guy over there. He's casting out demons in your name, Jesus. He's not one of our little group. We need to go stop him. And Jesus says, whoa. What are you thinking? He who is not against us is for us. We're all on the same team here, guys. Knock off the petty jealousy. Get rid of the pride. Let Christ be magnified. And John goes on and he gives them an illustration. Hey, look, I'm not the Christ. I've come merely to prepare the way. And let's use a wedding as everybody loves weddings. Weddings are happy times, happy occasions. And John says, now, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. I could be jealous that he's got the bride and I don't. But I'm not. Because as his friend, or as we would say it in our culture, as the best man, because in this culture, in Jewish culture, the, the best man was responsible for planning and executing the wedding. Now, ladies, just think about that. Think about your husband's best man. You trust in him with all the details? My best man is sitting right over here. That wasn't happening. But in their culture, the best man had the opportunity to be jealous that my friend's the one with the bride. But John says, I'm not. Because a good friend to the bridegroom rejoices that his friend, the groom, is filled with joy. He's thrilled that his friend has found his spouse, has found the one whom he will love to the end of his days. And John says, that's how I am. I'm just glad to be here. I'm just the bridegroom's friend. I'm just the best man. I've just been sent ahead to get everything ready for the celebration and the feast to come. So no, I'm not jealous like you guys. And I'm not threatened like you guys. I'm not the one who's important here. In a wedding, to put it in our parlance, the wedding coordinator is not the important one of the wedding, right? And let me tell you this, if the wedding coordinator stands out at a wedding, there's a problem. They're supposed to be in the background. And John says, this is me. I'm in the background. Murray Harris says it this way. Who needs the moon when the sun is rising? Who needs me, guys? Who needs you for that matter? And then he boils it down very quickly and very succinctly. Here's the lesson. We've had the preparation for it. We've had the problem and the tension of the lesson. Now let me give you the principle of the lesson. Here it is, guys. Learn it. Learn it well. He must increase, but I must decrease. I must be minimized. In, the, in John's language, it's so emphatic. It, it literally could say this way. He, that one, must increase. And me, 
This one, I decrease. There's a natural necessity to what the Baptist is now saying to his disciples when Christ is exalted, when Christ is made known, the most unnatural thing for any of us to do is to compete with Him. It's not right. It is so unnatural. It is so unbecoming. It is so sinful. But John isn't a natural man. John is a man in whom the Spirit is working. And in whom the Spirit has worked. I have one desire, that the name and the ministry of Christ grows in its scope, grows in its intensity, grows in its effect. That's all I want. Can you say that about your life? The only thing I want for my life this morning is for Christ and Him in me to be magnified and for Him to work through me whatever it costs. How sad that there are many professing believers and I'm not afraid to say it beginning with pastors, teachers, parents, spouses, friends, who are at times, because of their pride, saddened when Christ shines most brightly. When they're taken out of the equation, when God begins to do things that doesn't involve them in a sphere they have longed to have, and we're saddened by it. Hey, parents, don't be upset when you've been trying to communicate spiritual truths to your children and it's like, <whistles> and then they come to church and someone else tells them and it, God turns the light bulb on and they come home and they say, Mommy, Daddy, guess what I learned today? Guess what? And you go, wait a minute, I've been to... Just rejoice. Christ has been magnified. Just rejoice in the fact that they have been drawn to Him, even if it's not through your ministry. The converse is true. When Christ is magnified, we must. John doesn't say, well, I need to. Well, I probably should. He says, I must decrease. I've got to be. Laid low. I need to get to the point that nobody remembers my name. I, 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 I need to be what Nicholas von Zinzendorf said. Preach the gospel. Die. Be forgotten. That's what I need to be. Just do that. Just be forgotten. Let Christ be everything. We need to slip away like the friend of the bridegroom with joy on our face that we hear the laughter of our friend and say, so long as He is glorified. So long as He is joyed. It's all good. So guys, Trigger your own self 
induced recession. We hear a lot about that today, don't we? Well, the Fed's going to trigger a recession. Hey, spiritually, Christian, we need to trigger our own recessions. Less of us, more of Christ. Exalt the Savior. Humble yourself before Him. And the question we need to ask is Christ really, do you really believe Christ is worthy of that? Because if you do, you will. If you do, you will. Let's pray.